Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Um, I am really looking forward to the show today. Yeah, me too. So on this show, we're continuing our conversation about race and literature that we started in our show with Rennie at a Lodge and Kishani Wadiratna in 2017, which you can find in our archive. Specifically, today we'll be looking at racial bias, what it is, how it damages our society, and if there's anything we can do about it. We know that literature, like all culture, is biased, but can books also be a way of recognizing and combating stereotypes? We are so lucky to be welcoming our guest, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, who is widely considered one of the world's leading experts on racial bias. Her new book, Biased, is a comprehensive look at the science of unconscious bias and how it affects our society. Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about Jennifer? I would love to. Um, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt is a professor of psychology at Stanford in the United States and a recipient of a 2014 MacArthur Genius Grant. She's been elected to the National Academy of Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and was named one of Foreign Policy's 100 Leading Global Thinkers. She's an impressive woman. She's a very impressive Possibly woman. the most decorated person we've ever had on the show. Yeah, I think so. So today we will talk to Jennifer about bias, more generally about bias in literature, and finally we will give our book recommendations. So join us for the next hour as we try to further decolonize our minds. Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. We've asked you to start with a reading. Would you mind setting it up for us? Sure, and, and thank you for having me. I'm going to uh, start with a passage from the middle of the book. My husband, Rick, is the adventurous type. So when he decided he wanted to drive us through the noisy, congested city streets of Montego Bay and along winding country roads leading who knows where, I got a little worried. In Jamaica, they drive on the opposite side of the road, British style, with the steering wheel on what Americans would consider the passenger side. My husband had been driving on the right side of the road for nearly 35 years. The scientist in me wondered if that long indoctrination had left its mark on the neural pathways of his brain. The mother in me just hoped our family would make it to our destination unscathed. It wasn't until we headed back to town that our driver's mental gymnastics faltered. As Rick began to merge on the highway, the boys began screaming in the back seat. I turned my head to see what was wrong, and I got the scare of my life. Two giant 18-wheelers were speeding straight toward us, barreling down the highway side by side at breakneck speed. But Rick had not noticed them because he was looking the other way in the direction that traffic would be approaching if he were emerging onto a road in California. I joined the yelling, but Rick was f focused on the task at hand, steadily creeping onto the highway into the path of the trucks, still looking the other way, not comprehending what all our fuss was about. The truck drivers never slowed, presuming we would stop. Who wouldn't stop? In a fury, I yelled as loud as I could, Stop! 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 Stop the car right now! The panic in my voice led my husband to slam on the brakes, and we all watched as the truck sped past, just inches away from the front of our car. I was sweating profusely and my heart was pounding hard. 
we sat for a long few moments in stunned silence. A lifetime of driving on the right side of the road in the United States had shaped my husband and me more than we realized. It shaped not only how we situated our vehicle on the road, but also where we were inclined to look, how and when we turned our heads, and what captured our attention. It shaped a cascade of reflexive choices that every driver makes. There was a complex, coordinated system within us operating beneath our awareness and difficult to override. A whole host of actions are required to support the act of driving, but we had become oblivious to them over decades behind the wheel. We operated on instinct, though it was wholly learned. I'd gotten into the car that day, expecting to provide an extra set of eyes that could help protect our boys. Yet it was precisely because our sons had no driving experience that they could see the trucks that Rick and I had missed. They had not been conditioned to look only in certain ways or expect to see certain things. In many ways, this is how bias operates. It conditions how we look at the world and the people within it, despite our conscious motivations and desires, and even when such conditioning can put us in harm's way. Just as drivers are conditioned by how the roads are constructed in their native land, so too are we conditioned by the racial narratives that narrow our vision and bias how we see the people around us. Thank you so much for that reading. And I think it's a brilliant introduction to bias. I think I can skip over some of the questions that I was going to ask you about bias, which I'm sure you're pleased about after doing all of these interviews. But I did want to ask you specifically before we begin the conversation, if you could talk a little bit about implicit bias, because I know that was something when I came to the book, I didn't really understand the difference between the kinds of biases that I could have. And I thought you had a very good way of describing it in this book. Right. So um, implicit bias or unconscious bias, people use those terms interchangeably. And it just means, I mean, it can be defined as the beliefs and the feelings that we have about social groups that can influence our decision making and our actions, even when we're not aware of it. And so that's different from what people typically think about, right? When they think about bias, they're thinking of, you know, people who are filled with hate, um, people who are hostile, um, people who are bigots, right? Uh, you know, we're, we're thinking of, of people who are, are bad, who are kind of morally uh, bankrupt or uh, morally, you know, sort of corrupt in, in some way. Uh, but that's not how, you know, scientists uh, define this other kind of bias, this implicit or this inc- unconscious bias. You know, this is something that we're all vulnerable to. Um, in the book, I talk about the science behind that. You talk a lot about how the brain is primed for categorization and how this can be a precursor for bias. Right. Um, and, and things like stereotypes as well. Right. And you cite some really fascinating and very sobering and upsetting studies um, about how stereotyping works. And one of the the studies that I was was really drawn in by, and I have to say surprised by, was um, you talk about how black actors are treated oh. by white actors on TV. Right. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, because it shows just how... Um, 
well, especially I was interested in it because it shows how even when people f- sometimes feel that they're doing the right thing, right. they can still be spreading bias and sort of repeating this cycle of stereotyping. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so this was research that was conducted by several researchers at Tufts University um, and uh, in, the, in the U.S., and they were interested in uh, the role that media played in the spread of bias. So they took uh, popular shows um, that were on, like, Grey's Anatomy and CSI Miami and, you know, all of these uh, shows that had millions and millions of viewers. And uh, they also wanted to take shows where there there were uh, black actors who had strong uh, roles and sort of powerful roles, uh, you know, on on the show because that's where people, you know, would say that okay, that that having these positive images of African Americans can really break down stereotypes for people and um, kind of move us to a, a different place, kind of change the racial narratives of who black people are. And so this was a like a, a, a test case that was a, you know, it was a a, a, a difficult uh, test case, right? And if you can see bias there, right? <laughs> Even in these situations, then that would be, you know, a strong case for the, the um, really helping people to understand the power uh, of bias. So um, so they what they did was is they um, looked at how the other actors were ch- treating uh, black versus white actors on the shows. And um, and they were looking at um, kind of subtle things, right? It might be like nonverbal behavior. So it might be a facial expression or how you're leaning or uh, how far away you are. You know, so th- those kinds of things, um, a grimace, a frown, um, like slight things. Uh, so they found uh, that um, there was more n- negative nonverbal behavior directed at the black actors um, than there was directed at the white actors. So that was the first thing uh, they found. Um, and then the second thing they found was that when um, when when people are um, sort of watching the shows or you know or they're watching um, just just the nonverbals, right? They're picking up um, on that negativity, and so. So, so the more you watch the show, and the more you watch clips um, like this, um, th- the more bias um, you yourself as a viewer shows. So it's a way in which they call it like a bias contagion. It's a way to catch the bias from you know from that scene and from the show, and um, it, it it spreads to everyone who views that occurring. It's always so important to be reminded of how much of communication is nonverbal as well, isn't yes, it? You know, yeah. so much is happening. We think that we're more in control than we are. We know, do, I think. Um, For sure. Yeah, I was thinking about how also one of the things that comes up in the book several times is you, you talk about the conditions for bias mm-hmm. um, and being fear and right. feeling taxed. Right. And these, you know, these experiences making it much more likely that someone's biases are going to rise to the surface. Maybe. That's right. Um, and I really, I, I, I really enjoyed how clear you are about the way to counter that being to slow things down. Um, and just listening to you describe that that field of study as well, that we're looking at the um, nonverbal communication on screen, that's really slowing it down, isn't it? It's right. like winding things all the way down to the very baseline to see the ways that these things are playing out. Um, and I just think it, it it's so difficult to do that when talking about um, issues like race, which are so charged and so emotional and so urgent for so many people. Right. Um, 
And the, the tone of your book takes a really calm, you know, you talk about the personal and you talk about the very challenging and very upsetting examples of racial bias and racial violence in the United States in right. particular. Mm-hmm. Was it important to you to find that measured tone? Did it come naturally? Did you think about how you wanted to put this information over in your book or, or was it an organic process for you? Yeah, that's interesting. So in terms of the the measuredness of the tone, that comes naturally. I think I've been kind of sort of shaped uh, by what I do in a way. And uh, just, uh, you know, I'm an observer, uh, you know, of this, um, you know, as well um, as an actor. And so when I'm, uh, when I have my hat on as a social scientist, I'm able to step back really easily and just, you know, sort of examine what's happening and to try to examine that from all different angles. And so I'm comfortable there, even when what I'm examining would, um, you know, cause a lot of, uh, you know, you know, concern or alarm or emotion uh, for for other people. There's a way, I don't know, in which the the, the science, I feel like, gives me, um, I don't know, like uh, comfort, I guess, and, and, and power, you know, at the same time to just step back and, and just, you know, try to observe and try to, you know, sort of uh, pick it apart one piece at a time. And to, like you said, I like how you put that. I mean, you could think about that as a way of slowing things down. So I kind of slow things down for myself so that I can examine every element of it and create studies around it to really figure out, okay, well, what's going on here and what's going on there? Um, so, so in that way, I was very comfortable. Um, but um, in terms of uh, writing for a broader audience and and then lacing in um, the stories, that that um, you know that was a little harder, you know. <laughs> and uh, I had to um, I don't know go through uh, a process really of um, deconditioning myself because you know as a writer. When you're a social scientist, especially, you know, um, when you're writing in these journals uh, for other scientists, uh, no matter what I'm studying, um, there's a language for it. Mm -hmm. And that language is very distant, uh, where you are taught to remove yourself from the page and because it's about what you're studying and you're not supposed to really be there. You're supposed to be, um, I don't know, a narrator of something that's down here or some, you know, something that's away from you. Um, So I, you know, year after year, I practice removing myself and removing my voice from the page. And so I had to find that voice again to write the book. Um, I had to um, sort of figure out how to bring myself onto the page to be able to tell my own stories, but also the stories of others and to try to weave that into um, the science as well. You sort of go through the book and take down every possible stereotype there is about (laughs) black people and show about and show how this is the product of stereotypes and bias and also just how harmful it is to to black people in our society in the US and in the world you know it was just it's a litany of all of the ways that black people are discriminated against whether it's you know they're they're more likely to be stopped by the police 16% less likely to be accepted as an airbnb guest uh, more likely to be excluded at school right. we've talked uh, about um these police shootings and how you have shown through science that there is a reason why it seems to be that that black people are are the ones who are the targets of these. And 
And just reading all of those studies and all of those facts is in itself a really powerful document just Mm. to counter some of this. And I I wonder if you felt that that was part of the, well, mission of your work, but also the mission of the book is just to, to show people comprehensively all of this research together. Right. I, I, yeah, I, I wanted to, to show it. I wanted people to have access to it. I wanted uh, that work uh, to be a part of the conversation that we're engaged in right now. I, I feel like, you know, we are kind of consumed with issues of race and, and bias uh, right now in, 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 in different countries, right, in, in the U.S. and here um you know, in Australia, I mean, you know, you know, in many places we're thinking about these issues right now. And um, I, I feel like we're all touched, you know, by it. We're all dealing with it and struggling with it. And I wanted the science to be useful in this, you know, in this uh, discussion and in the struggle and uh, for uh, people to uh, be able to understand uh, what was happening um, in another way and to like uh, you know, be able to unveil that and to lift that so that we can have uh, you know more nuanced discussions about what it is and, and what we should do about it. Mm. Yeah and speaking of what we should do about it um, that that is an element of the book right. um, and please correct me if I've interpreted this wrong but my sense from reading this was that there's only so much that we as individuals can do. And a lot of the structural racism that you're talking about in the book and the bias sort of needs to come from the top down and from institutions. Um, You talk about the Oakland Police Department and how changes in the way that they policed actually had a really big effect on some of these outcomes that you're talking about right. in the book. Um, right. Have Have I got that right? Well, sort of. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that the the, the structural uh, bias is 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 a, a huge issue, and we do want our institutions and our organizations, and um, you know, the um, we want at a societal level to be able to t- to t- to tackle these things. But that doesn't mean we can't fight this at an individual level too. I, I think we need both, actually. Um, I think we need to um, sort of take aim in, in lots of different ways and, and use all of the levers that we have to um, try to uh, manage this. Yeah, and you talk about how we need to be more willing to become uncomfortable in order to do that, yes, right? Yes, yeah. Um, in, in intimate spaces as well as in structural spaces. It's the, the balance between the two feels vital. Um, and you talk about how uh, there is a tendency among white people to kind of assume that colorblindness is enlightened. Mm-hmm. And um, there's one point where you describe that black families tend to talk about race with their children very early on. Yeah. White families don't. Out of some, it turns out, very misplaced idea that that is the right thing to do. And I think there's a sense that comes through in your book that people are, you know, on the whole trying to do the right thing, but often they're very wrong-headed about it Um, and your description of how the idea of colorblindness can actually be a precursor to bias was was very interesting and I think something that a lot of white people probably really need to hear Um, because that seems like to me a very a a very old-fashioned approach to thinking about race but it's very pervasive isn't it oh it is yeah and it's pervasive in our schools and I mean that's what sort of teachers uh, teach um, students uh, in in schools there's a a study on this as well that I I, I talk about in the book uh, and 
you know, I like to um, sort of, you know, <laughs> talk about in, in situations like this, I guess. But uh, this was a study uh, where they were interested in how children um, think about colorblindness. So when we teach our children to be colorblind, where do they take that message? And does it have the outcome that we want it to have? And so they did a study with fourth and fifth graders, and they had them you know, they, they sort of taught them this kind of uh, a message where they said, well, okay, um, we all uh, care about racial equality. So therefore, it's important to not see color, basically, and to be colorblind. Or they had children, uh, fourth and fifth graders again, same kind of message, you know, we all care about racial equality. But this time, it was, therefore, uh, we should value diversity. Right, that that we should um, that that this is the goal. Um, so one goal is valuing diversity. The other goal is colorblindness. Okay, so now um, they're confronted with a situation. Um, they're told about this, you know, this uh, child who knocks another child down on the soccer field, and oh, you would call it the football field. Oh, you would call it the football field. <laughs> football okay. pitch, actually. Actually, yeah, yeah football pitch. <laughs> Carries the, the sportswoman amongst oh, the really? two of us. Oh, really? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> okay, so two children are uh, playing football, and a, a child knocks an um, African-American football player down on the ground and hits him or kicks him or something. And he's asked, well, why would you do that? And he says, well, because he's black. And so I uh, know that black people are aggressive and um, violent, and so I, I, you know, I knocked him down because of that, basically. So, you know, this is pretty sort of egregious, right? And most people would think about that as you know, an instance of discrimination, of racial discrimination. So what they found was that um, if you told um, children about this story and they're thinking about it and then you ask, is this an example of racial discrimination, um, if they had been in the valuing diversity condition uh, of the study, 80% of them said, well, yes, this is an example of discrimination. But if you ask the same question to um, students who were in the colorblind condition, only half of them said that this is discrimination. And so what they found was that, okay, so we're teaching colorblindness, and, uh, and, and, and the idea is that um, you know, this is going to make things better. But what the researchers found was that when we teach our children not to see color, they also don't see discrimination. That, again, is a value of science. So the intuitions that we have about you know, what makes sense and what should work and what, what seems to be common sense you know, isn't always um, going to bring about the result we want. Mm. And that makes me think of how you talk about how we can combat this personally. Um, right. You talk about open-minded attention. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and practically what that might mean for people in terms of how they think about combating bias in their own mind. Right. So there are lots and lots of what I call like mitigation uh, tools, right, that we can use to try to manage bias. We already talked about one, which was slowing down. And so that was that's a huge one, because when we're thinking quickly, we're forced to make decisions quickly. We fall back on these automatic associations we have. It's kind of like the example I, I uh, gave in the passage I read with the driving. You, you just go on automatic 
automatic pilot, and and that can harm you. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, even uh, even though you think that's the right thing, and it feels right to our bodies, and it feels you know sort of you know right. Um, you know, just because we've been thinking in that way for so long, it's not always uh, the right thing. So um, so slowing down, and then when you slow down, to be able to um, you know reflect uh, on it in a different way, to be able to turn. Um, the the situation on its head and to sort of look at it from different angles I think it's really important and and that's what I you know in some ways was trying to accomplish you know with my son you know on the airplane I didn't say well uh, you know ignore you know that or or I didn't ignore it I didn't mm-hmm. I, I I I actually asked the question um, you know why why would you think that because I wanted him to uh, actually think about it. I didn't want him to just keep absorbing this and repeating this and thinking this, right? I wanted him to think, why am I thinking that black people would rob airplanes? Or why am I thinking that black people are dangerous? Why am I thinking that a black person is bad and a black person is a criminal? So the next time he thought that, Maybe he could catch himself, right? And he could slow himself down and reflect on it and think about, well, where does that come from? And and when do I feel that way? And that's the whole critical thing here, too, is bias is not something that's just in our heads, but it's it's something that can get triggered by the, the situations we find ourselves in. And so understanding what those situations are can give us a huge amount of power over it. So, yes, yeah, so the, I want to talk a little bit more about slowing down and give you another example of, of what that looks like. So I um, was approached by this uh, tech company called Nextdoor uh, because they were having problems on their platform with racial profiling. Now, Nextdoor, it's a platform that's built to help people to feel like they're in community uh, with one another again. And uh, they can get on that uh, platform and share information and share goods and services and so forth. So they had a problem, um, as it turns out, uh, with racial profiling. So uh, people would use the crime and safety tab to, um, you know, uh, report a suspicious black man uh, say so that was the most common thing so they would look out the window and they would see a black person in an otherwise white neighborhood and they would say oh they would get uh, you know on the um, platform and communicate this to all the neighbors to watch out for this person um, so so this became you know a problem because I mean this was happening even though you know the person wasn't doing anything that was suspicious and wasn't engaged in any criminal activity and so forth and so and this would lead to all kinds of you know uh, conflict basically a conversation on the on the platform where, where people were you know it would kind of <laughs> get uh, uh, devolve into a, a difficult uh, dialogue basically about race and so what they um, realized was this okay how do we, we need to combat this and so they um, contacted uh, researchers people like me who study uh, bias and then they also consulted the literature and they found that you know one of the big triggers of bias is when people are uh, acting fast and so they realized okay this is the situation we have here because people are in this heightened state right and they want to um, protect the neighborhood and they feel like they have to act quickly to report this person before something happens and they go on the crime and safety 
safety tab and they say, hey, you know, there's a suspicious person here. And so they had to think about, well, we need to slow people down. We need to slow people down and get them to um, sort of think about what they're doing before they make that posting. And so, but then they had a dilemma, right? Because, you know, a lot of the tech companies, you know, they they make these products that are supposed to be friction-free, right? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be able to use these products without thinking, and it's supposed to be fluid and natural and intuitive and easy, and you don't need to think at all. But this is exactly the situation under which people are most vulnerable to bias, right? So they had this dilemma about whether to um, slow people down and risk losing people, you know, from the platform or, um, you know, actually, you know, keeping things the way they were and keeping the people, but then, you know, exposing people to this uh, profiling. So they decided that the you know, the, the problem was important enough to them to slow people down to take the gamble. And so they would just slow people down with a checklist. So before they were allowed to post on suspicious activity, they were told, um, well, what is it about this person's behavior, you know, that makes him suspicious? So it can't be black male, right? Uh, it has to be something that he's doing that's suspicious. That was the first thing. And then uh, second thing was you can't just describe the person as a black male, okay? This is kind of categorical thinking, right? Um, so you want to uh, describe the person so people would be able to um, pick him out. Um, you Describe him in enough detail so that you're not harming all these other people that fit in this broad category um, and, and sort of placing them, um, you know, in this, you know, or suspecting them of criminality. And then the the third thing is that they gave them a definition of what racial profiling was. So they gave them information and they told them that it was prohibited on the site. And so they were trying to set the norms for what, what, what you know, what appropriate behavior would be. And they found that simply, you know, adding this checklist made a huge difference. And, and what they were trying to do as a whole was to uh, turn this phrase. You've heard, you've seen this in airports, right? Uh, if you see something, say something. So they were trying to modify that to change the mindset. So it was, if you see something uh, suspicious, say something specific. Mm -hmm. So that's what they were going for. And using that technique, they were able to uh, curb racial profiling by over 75% on, on, on the platform. So that's a, that's a story about you know, using science. It's a story about solutions to this. It's a story about, you know, the benefits of slowing down. And I, I wanted to tell that story to you because this is literary friction, right? And and you're adding friction, and that's a good thing. You're getting people, that friction is, is a positive. It's not just, this is something we should get rid of. We want to be able to do things snap, 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 and quickly, and, you know, not have to be worried. And But sometimes... We, we do want to bog ourselves down. Sometimes we want to slow down so that we can see differently and uh, do things differently. And so I just wanted to say that because this is your whole mission is about fiction. <laughs> and that's my mission, too. So I feel like we're aligned in that way. Oh, well, <laughs> so that we. is a wonderful compliment. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we always joke that we don't have enough friction on the show, actually. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we are big but, believers in 
taking your time to think and yeah and really digest yeah. so right. that's such a kind thing to say thank you and I'm now going to campaign to TFL to change their slogan from yeah um, what was it if you see something, something suspicious, suspicious say, say something, something specific, specific. yeah right. it's such a simple change but it changes the whole mindset yeah. yeah, and it speaks to the issue you were talking about, the responsibility of our institutions and organizations and corporations in this, because we can do that for ourselves. We can slow down ourselves and add friction to our own lives in a good way. But because they're a company and they have a huge voice, right? So in the U.S., they're in 95% of the neighborhoods in the U.S. right now. That's and they're huge. in some European neighborhoods, too. I think I think in England and mm. um, in Germany and in France, um, maybe not as big, but, but maybe growing. So, so just adding that checklist, you know, that shapes so many minds at one time, right? It's huge. It's a huge... You know responsibility, uh, but it's also there's a there's a huge role to play there for organizations and corporations. Mm. Well, I certainly felt that reading your book was for me a really great way to slow down and think about all the <laughs> different ways that I am biased. Um, and so I'd really recommend that all our readers do the same. I think the best way to start here is just to read the book. So <laughs> Jennifer Eberhardt, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really illuminating to speak to you. And we had many, many more questions that oh. we didn't get to ask. But um, I, I would just point people to the book. It's called Biased. And um, it is out in bookstores now. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is racial bias in literature. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Welcome back. Thank you. So we are thinking of this as a continuation of a discussion about race that we're having on the show. Um, one that we began when we talked to Rennie at Lodge about her book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Full disclosure, I'm now Rennie's proud agent. Um, I'm not sure that I can be neutral about her book, but um, I love that discussion and I love that book very much. Um, on the same show, we had editor Kishani Widyaratna on to talk about the publishing industry in the UK and all of the racial biases that existed and still exist within that industry. It's an ongoing, multifaceted, essential discussion that can't be captured in one, two, or even 10 shows. And we are very, very, very aware that we are two white women talking about race. We will try to be very mindful of our privilege. We will also try to be very mindful of our ignorance. And we're coming to this from a place of hopefully openness and and trying to t dissect some of our own biases. We thought, though, that it was really important to have Jennifer on to think about our own biases and to use her book as a kind of framework to think about how racial bias manifests in literature and in the publishing industry. So I guess let's start with the question, how does unconscious bias play a part in literature? What are your thoughts, Octavia? I have some Just thoughts. Throwing, <laughs> throwing it to you. You did. You threw that yeah. ball at me. Um well, you know, as as Jennifer spoke about in our interview with her, unconscious bias is something that operates on everybody. No one's free from it. Um, and if you think of it as this force that is silently directing your choices across your life, um, and it's something that because of the, the name, the clue is in the name, it's unconscious, mm. you, you know, you have to grow into an awareness of it. And once you become aware, 
as Jennifer was saying, you slow yourself down and you start to ask yourself a series of questions, then you can begin to unpick it. So, you know, the way it's going to operate in your reading life it's going to be what you choose to read, what books are you drawn to, what narratives do you decide to take into your personal space and get involved in. That's going to be influenced by the education that you had, the people around you when you were growing up. Same as actually whether you read at all, you know, this stuff is all very responsive to what's around you. So I think for a lot of white people in the United Kingdom, let's say, that's the experience that I can speak to the most clearly. We grew up in an education system that privileged white voices, privileged mm. masculine voices. Um, and this idea of decolonizing your reading is something that for my generation anyway, or our generation, you know, something that's had to come later in life because the education system that was operating when we were at school wasn't really doing it. Um, I hope now it's different. I don't know. I don't know what the syllabus is like for teenagers, let's say, in secondary schools, let alone children. If the decolonize the curriculum ongoing campaign is anything to... Um, go by, it sounds like curriculums still have a lot of work left to do. Yeah. Well, I can't remember the name of that fantastic activist who was at Oxford. Was it Oxford University? Yeah, Lola something. Yeah, I think that's right. And she was doing incredible work to wake up that entire system. And she's still doing it. And she's still doing it. And I bet she's having to fight tooth and nail to be heard by the powers that be. I think that's really true um, about bias affecting what we choose to read and what the sort of structural white patriarchy chooses to place importance upon. Yeah. Um, I also was really, really interested in how Jennifer talked about stereotypes in her books and how they get propagated and sort of replayed and recycled by culture. And she talked about a bit about TV, but I think it absolutely applies to literature as well, that literature can be a place where stereotypes get reused and recycled and sort of reinforced in the culture. Um, And, you know, I think American literature is where I know more about things, but um, you you definitely see this in, in, like, there are the famous examples, things like Gone with the Wind, um, which has this awful character of Mammy, things like Robinson Crusoe, Uncle Tom's Cabin, all these things that have these really pernicious stereotypes about about black people, which has obviously been absorbed by the culture, but then are sort of reprojected to it when people read it. Um, but it still happens today. Um, and uh, I think, again, to use some American examples, The Help by Catherine Stockett, which was a huge New York Times bestselling work, um, which is about this journalist who goes to the South and sort of is able to tell the stories of the black women who were working in these Southern households, um, essentially is a white savior narrative uh, where where the, the voices of black people are only really heard through this white character. And, you know, uh, Green Mile winning Best Picture, I think, says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, these things still persist and still are considered okay. One of the really pernicious stereotypes that comes back again and again in British literature is anti-Semitic. Um, you know, starting with, I mean, Shakespeare's character Shylock, uh, Chaucer wrote some pretty anti-Semitic characters. Um, T.S. Eliot, Virginia Woolf, Evelyn Waugh, all writers who have trespassed into that territory. And that, you know, I like... I, I hope that's their unconscious bias coming through rather than their active violent racism. Um, but I think the thing about these stereotypes, the thing that's so dangerous about them is that 
whether they're coming through a writer's unconscious bias or whether they're coming through a much more violent desire to denigrate one particular race in their work, which is a question that is kind of unanswerable, really, because you can't get inside the head of the of the author. But um, I think it's to do with what people are looking for in literature. And a lot of the time, readers... Uh, well, let's let me rephrase that. Not necessarily a lot of the time, but one of the things that people enjoy when reading is a reflection of the world that they feel comfortable in. And um, to read work that challenges your bias means reading work that's going to make you feel very uncomfortable. And I, I just want to go back to what Jennifer said about the conditions for triggering bias being fear and discomfort mm. and um, how that is going to come about in your personal reading life and how you're going to manage those feelings is going to change person to person but I think that there has to be a, a kind of reassessment culturally of what we're looking for when we read, read literature and that there is it's happening on many different levels and scales but the idea that you you know you really ought to be coming at what you're reading with a critical lens as well as a, a lens that's about enjoyment and that you can be reading on both levels at the same time and if you're mindful of the ways that your biases are, are, are acting back and forth on you as you're reading a text, you'll be able to learn from everything that comes across your path. So it's the difference between being passive and active, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And also, it definitely applies to the publishing industry as well, because going back to which narratives do we prioritize, which narratives do we elevate, um, the publishing industry has a problem partially that it's um, run by white people and staffed mostly by white people, but also in terms of the books that are published. There's some really sobering statistics about how many authors are people of color in the UK, um, and I'm sure it's the same in the US. Only a small minority, fewer than 100 authors in 2016, um, were people of color. Oh, my God. In terms of the books Are you published. kidding? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's appalling. Yeah, that's worse than I had um, imagined. Yeah. I suppose because the kind of work that's crossing our path a lot that we're being sent by publicists isn't representative of the broader spectrum of what's being yeah. published. And and I think those discussions about how to rethink who works in publishing and what is published has to take into account this idea of bias um, because, as Jennifer pointed out, you know I th I think that. The, the, the scientific research she does suggests that people who are white are probably more likely to identify with and publish white narratives yeah, that they absolutely. feel comfortable with. I think that's true. And I think even, you know, you have the whole, <clears throat> the white savior complex and the good white person complex. And I think that there are plenty of people out there who are trying their best. Um, and because they're trying their best, want a big cookie and a pat on the back for it. And maybe um, there can be a disconnect with people trying their best who then feel that they don't need to examine themselves as hard. Um, so maybe they are managing their conscious bias, but they stop uh, they stop the work before getting into their unconscious bias as mm. well, which is a much harder thing to do. But it's something that we should all be committing to daily. Definitely. And accepting that it's going to be it's, got, it's a process that's going to involve plenty of failure, but that doesn't mean you stop. You keep going and you get more uncomfortable. Yeah, totally. But this is not to say that every book in the world is um, just going to reestablish your stereotypical ideas about things. I mean, I think we are very positive about literature on the show. And one of the reasons we are is because we see it as a really rich space in which to... Um, 
look into the worlds of other peoples and to break down some of these stereotypes by by creating full alive characters and Absolutely. I think there are plenty of examples in in fiction also in nonfiction. and I mean Gen- Jennifer's book for instance is, is a great example of books that really take apart a lot of these stereotypes and biases that that exist in cultures and there are a lot of books that I think do this um, one example that came to mind immediately for me was Queenie by Candace Carty Williams who works in publishing I should say but it's the number one hardback fiction book in the nation right now in the Sunday Times bestseller list and that is so exciting to me um, and Candy said that she wrote it partially because she wanted to write about a protagonist that she hadn't read about before in fiction. And Queenie is a black woman who defies stereotypes. And I think that's what's so wonderful about that book, um, in addition to it just being a great novel. Yeah, it sounds it sounds amazing. Um, I've seen loads of people clutching it on the yeah. tube, which is, and it's also got this incredibly gorgeous, brightly coloured mm. cover and everything. I mean, I was thinking as well about nonfiction and, you know, there's a mixture of like the more kind of intense theory by writers like Bell Hooks, um, some of Audre Lorde's essays, which, you know, Silver Press republished a couple of years ago. And it's just it's very exciting that some of these writers who were working mainly, you know, 20 years ago are being brought back to the fore. Um, then there's also a whole bunch of fantastic memoirs, for example, like Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, which was phenomenally successful and is, is really about black masculinity in the, in the United States. Natives by Akala, which I haven't read yet, and I am really looking forward to getting to. Um, obviously, Rennie's book, um, another one called Black Skin, White Masks by Franz Fanon, which I also haven't read. But there's a, there's a huge amount out there. And I mean, we, we constantly shout out The Good Immigrant, but... It was such a sea change when that book appeared. It was about giving voice to a multiplicity of different racial experiences. And I think that's really, really important as well to kind of remember that often the 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 bias that we talk about dominantly in this conversation is to do with black people, but that there are plenty of other racial di- races that experience discrimination mm. and bias that are less represented. Um and Nikesh Shukla, who edited The Good Immigrant, has set up an agency called The Good Agency that is totally dedicated to bringing voices of colour to the f- mainstream and to the fore. And they are doing really, really fantastic work. Um, so it's all out there, essays, poetry, you know, if you look for it. But I think the thing that has to be said again and again is that, you know, it the burden of responsibility does fall on people to look for it still because the way the industry is structured, it's not necessarily going to be, these are not the voices that are going to be thrust in your face. Mm, And that's the thing that's difficult. Yeah, we should be taking it upon ourselves rather than forcing people of colour to be writing these books to explain things to us. Exactly. And I think that's the thing that that is often lost in the the conversation when white people are having it. Um, The burden of the burden of responsibility lies with you to educate yourself. And there is plenty of work out there. Do you know that does make me think about um, this Toni Morrison quote, uh, which I think is an amazing summation of what racism is and what it does. And um, she says, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdom, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. It's a very, very powerful quote, and I think it speaks to a lot of the work that we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So, so powerful. 
So powerful. Why don't we get to our recommendations for books that deal with racial bias? What were you thinking, Octavia? Well, initially I was thinking about Claudia Rankine's Citizen because it is one of the books that I found so phenomenally powerful about the experience, both physical and emotional, of being on the wrong side of racial violence and oppression. Um, but it came up in our conversation with Kish and Rennie. Kish recommended it. And um, so I'm not going to dwell on it, but I did just want to shout it out again. If you haven't read it, do it. But today I wanted to talk about Swing Time by Zadie Smith. Um, she's such a skilled writer and it's probably not my favourite of her novels, but it's still a really fantastic read. And I think it's relevant in this conversation because it tackles the effects of racial bias and privilege, not only in a nuanced way, which is one of the things that fiction is really a wonderful arena to be addressing these problems in. Um, but it's also on, on a pretty wide scale because she gets into the experiences of a cast of very different characters and in doing so, looks at how these issues intersect with class, with gender, with fame, um, and how these in turn affect people's social mobility. And the narrative unfolds in this very meaty way that challenges the desires, the assumptions, the biases of all of its characters, but also of you as the reader um, when it comes to the meaning of success and the meaning of fulfillment. Um, and it was interesting to revisit it through the lens of thinking about this particular issue. Um, and it made me want to reread it. I read it in a kind of voracious race um, when it came out. Uh, yeah, but it's it's a fantastic book. It's a really, really clever, smart. Um, and yeah, like I said, she's just such a beautiful writer. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. Oh I'm God, I think you'll say. really enjoy it. Yeah. yeah, okay. I have it at home sort of waiting for me and I that with that beautiful yellow cover. Yeah, thing. it's not perfect, but why should it be? You no, know? that's but kind I, of what I like about Sadie Smith. Yeah, exactly. But there's there's a lot to think about. And my God, talk about white savior narratives. She very caustically rips that one mm -hmm. apart and it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, great. Um, well, I am going to recommend a novel called Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Um, I read this book in college and I found it to be an incredibly powerful indictment of racism in America, as well as just a masterful work of literature, uh, both of those things at once. It's the Kafkaesque story of one unnamed black man and his struggle and eventual failure to be seen for who he truly is, um, which ends in his eventual retreat underground. And it's sort of told from underground, much like Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky. So it has all of these because of the literature that's come before it. And I mean, bias plays a big part in this story. Uh, and, and I think the novel exposes bias and racism for what it is. And in fact, Jennifer talks specifically about Invisible Man in her book as, as a great example of some of the principles that she's talking about. I really loved what she had to say about it. So I'm just going to parrot her words now, which is that Ellison described that black people are visually registered only with the aid of cultural stereotypes that function to distort their image. These stereotypes lead blacks to be the subject of gaze, then block them from being fully seen. It's a paradox of peril. High visibility is accompanied by invisibility. I thought that was, yeah. she was so good at summing up um, what he does in the novel, but also how science actually works in tandem with that kind of cultural document. Yeah, and it sounds like a fantastic book. I'd love to read it. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Jennifer Eberhardt, who has kindly agreed to stay and to give us her book recommendations. So 
Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. Um, I'm reading this phenomenal book, which I'm holding up to show everyone in the room, um, called Whereas by Lely Long Soldier. And it's it's blowing my mind. It's literally a book of uh, poetry, a collection of poetry, but I'd actually call it a paradigm shift in 97 pages. It's... Whoa. Yeah. It's taking me to another dimension wow. <laughs> of, of sensitivity and experience. And it's so physical and cerebral at the same time. She does this amazing job of bringing you into all parts of your humanity at once. It's very unusual writing. Um, and it, I mean, they describe it, the publisher describes it as a virtuosic, virtuosic array of short excuse me, it's a mouthful, a virtuosic array of short lyrics, prose poems, longer narrative sequences, resolutions and disclaimers to create an innovative examination of history, landscape, writing and the predicaments of belonging, which is a mouthful. And uh, I actually think doesn't make it sound as exciting as it actually is, but it, it feels really right to have it um, very much in the mouth <laughs> and in fullness because it's it's so tactile, it's a piece of work. Um, it opens actually with an imperative to now make room in the mouth for grasses, grasses, grasses. And it just brings you into this sense of, of, of landscape, but also the personal body in landscape and the mm. way that these things interact. Um, she writes about her body. She writes about being um, a woman. She writes about being a human. She's a U.S. citizen, but she's also an enrolled, enrolled member of the Agala Sioux tribe. And she invokes this duality uh, within this space. Um, where she has to make work and she has to make love and she has to make family. Um, and there's this kind of tussle for identity, but it's it's drawn into this physical space. I know I keep banging on about it, but I don't know. There's something about it. It's clear, it's resonant, it's very disobedient, which is one of my favorite things. <laughs> um, and very energetic without being a frenzy. And I'm just, I'm completely captivated by it. I think uh, I think everyone should read it. Wow. Yeah, strong recommendation from Octavia <laughs> right there. I feel like I have to read it now. I'll lend it to you when yeah. I'm done, but I'm also nervous to let go of it. I feel like <laughs> I want to hold on to it. <laughs> Jennifer, could we have your recommendation, please? So my recommendation would be Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Yes. It, it's a great book, and uh, I teach at, at Stanford undergraduate class on race and crime, and I've taught that class for years, and as soon as the book came out, I, I assigned it to my class, and it was by far uh, the students' favorite reading, and they said, you know, they read that book, and they were crying, and they called their um, mothers to, to read it, and their friends to read it, and ever since, I think it came out in 2014, and but ever since it came out, I've been assigning that book, um, you know, every year, and uh, every year it has that same impact, and it has an impact on me. I keep reading it over and over, right, to prepare for class, and I find new things in it um, every time. But it's a, it's a book that is a, you know, a critique of of the criminal justice system uh, in the United States. But I think it's a, it's a, you know, broader, you know, critique of um, how we uh, think about race and the the negative racial narratives uh, that we have and what the impact of those narratives are on the legal system. And Brian Stevenson is not only a writer, but he is uh, a death penalty uh, lawyer and activist. And he um, really is a, you know, this incredible um, figure uh, in the United States who gives voice to the voiceless. He, you know, fights for uh, 
people uh, who are, you know, poor and, and people of color, uh, people who are indigent. And he goes to the Supreme Court uh, and um, tries to, um, you know, move uh, the court to, um, you know, to, to change uh, laws that are uh, unconstitutional. And he's been successful, you know, at that. And I think he's a hero, you know, for a lot of people. And um, he definitely is uh, one of my heroes, uh, for sure. And the book is, um, you know, really well written and um, helps us to see uh, the role that law and policy uh, can play in bringing about change. And um, I think I had that book in mind as I wrote Bias, right, because my hope uh, was that, um, you know, science can can also play that role mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of bringing about change and, and, and also um, helping us to be uh, more engaged and, and more hopeful about the future. Another rousing recommendation. I've heard <laughs> so many amazing things about that book, and I really can't wait to read it. I also noticed that he might have had something nice to say about bias as he well, did, yeah. which, must have been, <laughs> which must have been really it exciting t- for you. It wasn't tit for tat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, that's how I ended up writing a book. It was um, his book agent, you know, asked him, you know, you know, he thought that we needed a book in the world on, on bias. And he asked Brian, who do you think you know I should talk to? And so Brian sent him in my direction. So Amazing. I never planned to write the book, uh, but he came to me yeah. and asked if I would consider it. And that, that's how it happened, actually. That's a great story. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I am going to recommend a book that I'm currently reading called Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. I've heard about Have this. Have you heard about yes. this? Yeah, so it's not actually published yet. It's um, going to be published by... Bloomsbury here in the UK in July. Um, so I'm reading a, an advanced proof copy, which is one of the show off <laughs> <laughs> benefits of working in the publishing industry. But um, so this is an amazing book, um, not least because the author spent eight years writing it um, and and investigating it. So she spent time, sort of deep investigative time, with three women in America looking at their sex lives, basically, and how Mm -hmm. desire works, and has taken all of that deep reporting and all of those conversations and um, work that she's done and written a completely riveting book that sort of strips back all of the work she was doing and just tells the story of these women sort of in their voices. Um, And it's fascinating, and it has really been making me think deeply about women's sex desire America today um, she's a fantastic writer I mean I'd be I, I am really interested to hear what you think of it Octavia because I do think that there are some things in it that made me a little uncomfortable it's I mean it's quite sort of hetero in its worldview um, and also that's a shame <laughs> and also it's quite essentialist about gender in a way that that's feels a little outdated but I think for me um, its importance is just the way that it documents the lives of women. Um, Also thinking about in the context of your book Jennifer I mean things that we have just absorbed from the culture around us we live in a heteronormative society so it makes sense that when talking about desire for the most part people are coming from those 
places. So it's something, you know, I'm joking when I'm saying that's a shame, but it, it is a shame, but it's also totally understandable, right? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And if you're going with, like, the, the experience of the common man or the common woman in this case, it's more likely to be that than to be anything queer. Or, I'm desperate to read it. I, I wrote my PhD about desire oh. and hysteria, so it's yeah. I'm, it's kind of my wheelhouse without being my wheelhouse. If you yeah, know I'm I mean. really interested to know what you think. Yeah. I think it's completely riveting, and I will be recommending it to most people. Maybe we can get her on the show. Yeah, it's a good good idea. She'll have us. (laughs) (laughs) That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, Rory Bowens at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email litfriction at gmail.com or at litfriction. We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.